Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer. ISLC is a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology, celebrating our 50th anniversary this year. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and ISLC.org under the ISLC News tab. We're your hosts, Dr. Stephen Liu and Dr. Narjus Flores. Hello, this is Lung Cancer Considered, the official podcast of the ISLC. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. And I'm Dr. Narjus Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Today's episode is part of a special series on seminal trials in thoracic oncology. We're discussing the phase one study of the PD-1 inhibitor nivolumab. To help discuss that study in that moment in time, our guest, Dr. Julie Bammer, Professor of Oncology at John Hopkins University and Director of the Upper Aerodigestive Department and the Bloomer Chemo Institute for Cancer Immunotherapy. Julia, thank you for joining us today. Hello and good morning. Julie, we're so familiar with immunotherapy. This is our standard of care. It's such an integral part of treating lung cancer across stages. It's made such a difference, transformative type of medicine, but it is a relatively recent development. So can you take us back to, to what the climate was like 20 years ago and the field of immunotherapy in, in sort of general oncology? So in, co- in oncology 20 years ago, certainly cytokines were used for patients with melanoma or advanced renal cell carcinoma. Vaccines were studied as well, but really for other solid tumors, immunotherapy was not working. Certainly different antibodies were being tested uh, in liquid tumors, leukemia and lymphoma, but certainly had not really reached uh, consistently in the clinic. But, you know, cytokines like high-dose IL-2 was being tested and used in patients with advanced melanoma and renal cell carcinoma. And it was exciting to see in those patients some uh, significant responses and long-term disease control, even with metastatic disease. But that was a very minority uh, number of patients and certainly a very tough regimen to get through since most of these patients required admission for those types of therapies. And in general, lung cancer was felt not to be immunogenic. And so immunotherapy, while uh, cytokines were tested in lung cancer, really did not show any obvious evidence of response or clinical efficacy. Thank you for sharing that with us. I think as a junior faculty, it's so great to learn what has happened before Uh, We have certainly come a long way since then, now with multiple checkpoint inhibitors available. Our focus today is on nivolumab, but in the history books, will we see multiple names? Uh, NDX-1106, the longest one, BMS-9365-50A, that one certainly sounds like a phone number, and ONO-4538. Can you tell us a little bit about the name changes and the early history of this drug? Sure. Well, originally, the PD-1 antibody was co-developed with Ono as well as Metarex. That is where the drug nivolumab was originally developed. And then uh, Metarex was 
spot or taken over by uh, Bristol Myers Squibb, and thus then the name change. Um, but when we first started working with this drug and bringing it into the first in human trial, meeting with folks at Medarex, which at the time was a very small biotech company, was certainly exciting. And that's how I originally uh, met it was MDX 1106. But certainly as uh, BMS took that over, then the phase one moving forward was labeled as the long uh, phone number uh, BMS 936558. Interestingly, initially, the first in human trial, uh, MDX 1106, was given as just a single dose, and that was it. And then when uh, we reached the MTD or the maximum planned dose, then uh, the next phase one trial based on those results of the first in human trial did test a different way of giving the drug instead of one dose. Then in the second phase one, it was given once every two weeks based on the half-life that was found in the first in human study. So that's kind of how it originally uh, was developed. Again, a single dose where we uh, saw responses. And then the next phase one trial looking at a different schedule was the once every two weeks. And that's how that ended up going forward. So it was exciting to be part of the first in human trial. All of us felt a little uncomfortable giving just one dose to a patient and expecting any response. But uh, again, we saw responses and, and for the first time ever. And so it was exciting to be part of that. Yeah, that, that phase one study, Julie, was such an important trial in, in oncology overall. It explored multiple dosing strategies across a couple different cancer types. You know, patients in the study had melanoma, prostate cancer, renal cell carcinoma, colorectal cancer, or non-small cell lung cancer. Can you take us sort of behind the scenes and tell us why were those specific cancer types chosen? Well, I think for uh, the decision about which cancer types to include really goes back to history. And those original uh, cytokine studies where that showed that renal cell carcinoma and melanoma could respond to those type of therapies. So it was seemed obvious to the company and, and the investigators, well, we need to include renal cell and, and melanoma. But certainly the other cancer types that were included were based more on uh, investigator interest. One of our co-investigators was a prostate cancer specialist and had worked in immunotherapy and helped discover LAG3. And so the thought was that potentially this type of uh, checkpoint could play a role in prostate cancer, colorectal cancer as well. And then for non-small cell lung cancer, I was like, we have to include that. I am, I am one of, uh, I take care of lung cancer patients. And so I'd love to be able to look at those patients. So let's include that as well. And then I think also market share plays a role. Colorectal, prostate, and lung are some of the most common cancers uh, that are seen in oncology clinics. And so it was uh, worth taking a look and seeing whether or not this type of checkpoint inhibition could play a role in cancer control. I think that's extremely fascinating how one investigator or a group of investigators can develop something that has changed the treatment of lung cancer forever. So 
As the phase one study progressed, were there any challenges you faced while participating in the clinical trial? And as this trial was evolving, did any of the new therapies that were coming at that time influence this phase one trial? So I think in this first in human trial, I think the challenges really uh, started off with toxicities. You know, these type of therapies do not have your typical toxicities that either targeted therapies have or chemotherapies have. And so knowing the biology and what was seen in the mouse studies was very important to understand. But we were seeing toxicities that were obviously immune related. And so that certainly was a challenge going back to your medicine roots and and relearning some of uh, how to treat those type of therapies, uh, those type of toxicities. I think interestingly, also besides the toxicity point, and I think, you know, a lot of uh, phase one drug development investigators do uh, have to deal with new drugs and new toxicities and, and really understanding the mechanism of action, I think also is, you know, the expectations. We had no expectations for response. This was just one dose and patients could get another dose at 12 weeks and 16 weeks if they had stable or responding disease. But really, there was no expectation that patients would uh, actually receive the second or third dose. But I think seeing responses in melanoma, even with one dose, and then also for the first time, a response in colorectal cancer uh, was uh, quite amazing. I think also with lung cancer, there was really no significant responses seen. Oh, there was no partial response or complete response in patients with lung cancer. But we did see one response or at least shrinkage of some tumors in one uh, lung cancer patient that was quite surprising because we really didn't expect anything. I think that for new therapies in lung cancer at that time that sort of influenced or maybe was pushing back against using immunotherapy was really targeted therapies. Targeted therapies were being used for patients, not just for a specific target, but really more widely, as well as even anti-VEGF therapies were now being widely used as well. And so immunotherapy, um, because the thought was that lung cancer was so non-immunogenic and wouldn't respond to immunotherapies, uh, you know, folks were more pivoting into the targeted therapies or anti-VEGF and really not that interested in checkpoint inhibitors. I think that all of us are so incredibly grateful that you pushed to include non-small cell lung cancer in this study. I think it's a different world if that doesn't happen. But at the time, as you mentioned, this was not felt to be an immunogenic cancer. Immunotherapy was for these sort of unusual tumors like melanoma, like renal cell carcinoma. So at the time, were you optimistic about the, the prospects of efficacy in lung cancer? And you know, what was the general expectation from the lung cancer community here? Well, I think it's kind of funny. Um, being part of our phase one drug development group, I felt I was the queen of the dead drugs. Most of the uh, phase one trials that I was leading did not lead to any further development of those drugs. And so when I was approached to lead this study at Johns Hopkins, um, 
I didn't have a whole lot of expectations. It was exciting, though, that it was a completely different set of um, uh, this was a completely different drug that I had ever worked for worked with. And certainly our cancer immuno immunology group always wanted me to work with them. But vaccines in the past just did not uh, interest me. And so being able to help uh, from the ground up design the study with the company and being able to uh, sit down with the scientists in the lab uh, to try to develop different ways of monitoring these patients uh, from an immunologic way, and then also help our pathologist help develop the PDL1 antibody on uh, Dr. Leeping Chen, who was at the time at Johns Hopkins, uh, developed that antibody to check uh, and evaluate tumors along with Janice Taub uh, in the lab. So that was exciting. But I had no ex expectations. And I think even as the phase one study went along, when we saw some partial some responses uh, or small, smaller tumors in one particular patient with lung cancer, the company really did not want to include non-small cell lung cancer in the next wave of phase one studies where we were giving the drug once every two weeks. But I was like, I will not be involved if you don't include lung cancer in the next phase one study. And Dr. Tapalian also went to the company and said, you know, we're seeing this even though it's not a complete response or partial response, we need to include lung cancer in this next study. And so I think that was really a pivotal, pivotal moment that if we hadn't continued to pursue that, nivolumab uh, would not have an indication for lung cancer. And so, you know, I, I do, you know, thank Dr. Tapalian as well as Dr. Pardal, who really um, pushed hard along with myself to include lung cancer in further studies. And so then in the second phase, phase one study, we saw more responses and that was exciting. Thank you, Julie, for that. And this was mentioned early during our conversation and uh, early publication of safety and efficacy in JCO in 2010. When do you realize that we were dealing with something new when it comes to adverse events, uh, particularly in patients with lung cancer? Well, I think that, you know, we, we were uh, really excited that we saw some response where, you know, in lung cancer patients, we didn't expect anything. Um, and with that hint, we really felt that this could be a blockbuster. Again, hoping that it wasn't just a normal uh, uh, variation in tumors, which you can sometimes see, but, you know, trying to again, push to include this further on. I think also just the fact that the side effects of this drug so mirror what you would expect with the mechanism of action really, and we saw some of those side effects. So we knew that we were affecting the immune system of these patients. And so, you know, so that also gave credence that this drug is doing what it's supposed to do, uh, though we wanted it to affect the cancers themselves. I do think also, you know, just caring for these patients, you know, back in the day, most of even the melanoma patients would do so poorly on the current therapies that were then available. And to see these patients with melanoma uh, do well and have one patient had a complete response, 
um, was was amazing. And in fact, one of those patients is still alive today um, and shouldn't have been because of her widely metastatic disease. So I think, you know, while we didn't see that early on in lung cancer, then in the next phase one, we did as well. Now, I think most of us uh, were introduced to the real potential for immunotherapy in non-small cell lung cancer at ASCO 2012. It was uh, not in the plenary session. It was in the clinical science symposium down that long hall, uh, past the exhibit hall, um, but it was a full room and you had gone up on the podium, presented data on 122 patients with non-small cell lung cancer treated with nivolumab. Uh, that was my first ASCO after fellowship. And you know, for me, it was really under the radar. And I think for a lot of us, it was. Can you tell us a little about the significance of those initial data and, and how they were received by the lung cancer community, by your peers? What's interesting, when I first gave the first inhuman ASCO presentation, there might have been 20 people in the cancer immunology session, might have been. And I was so nervous. And then in 2012, when uh, I was asked to present the data on the next phase one, where we had a large group of patients for non-small cell lung cancer, I think because it was a clinical science symposium, it was filled, but no one expected there was uh, going to be much, uh, much ado about uh, nivolumab. But when I presented this, there were certainly uh, probably the majority of the questions were those from skeptics that we were just lucky. We saw responses. This would never play, play a role in lung cancer down the, down the road. But there were a group of folks that were excited to be able to see that immunotherapy actually may play a role in lung cancer. And we were having patients that have significant responses that were long lasting uh, and even though we saw immunologic toxicities in general, this was easier to tolerate than the drugs that we have or had at the time, uh, such as docetaxel. Um, you know, immunotherapy very quickly became our second line standard option, a pretty low bar. Now our first line standard and a part of treatment for every stage of lung cancer Julie, what was that development process like moving from, from this trial so quickly to multiple phase three studies? Well, I think that, you know, it was great to see the uh, whole community after other therapies in the same class showed consistent responses and folks could equate responses with PDL one level on the tumor surface. And so being able to see consistent responses uh, across the class and then leading to phase three studies was exciting. Certainly at that initial point, it, it seemed like it took a long time because when we initially published the first in human study, my daughter was born and then I can track each milestone with her birthdays. Um, so to be able to follow that again uh, was significant. You know, there was a rapid pace. We uh, have seen significant changes across all of the lung cancer subtypes and, and stages. But now it seems that we're starting to plateau. You know, every company is developing a PD-1 or PDL one inhibitor to have their own. But we're not seeing huge inroads in patients with refractory uh, response. So patients whose disease do, does not respond at all to PD-1 or PD-L1 inhib inhibition, or those patients who develop 
resistance. We haven't been able to crack that yet. Uh, and I'm hoping with technology and trying to figure out an individualized therapies may actually play a role in really moving the bar thereafter. So again, we initially saw a rapid pace, rapid uptake, a lot of phase uh, three trials that then went through the gamut of early stage. And I think in early stage, that's where the most excitement is right now. But I do think there's so much more work to do for almost the majority of patients whose disease does not respond or develops resistance at some point. Those are very good points. I think advancing the science to, with those patients that have resistance or disease progression is very important. But going back to memory lane, with hindsight, what was the overall significance of this study for the field of lung cancer and for patients with lung cancer? Well, I think having a completely different treatment modality was so important. In the past, or even now, sometimes with new chemotherapies, it just seems like we're just rearranging how patients will respond and trying to change the just the toxicities. But this was truly a, a different uh, therapeutic modality. And I think for patients, it opened up the possibility for, I hate, I am tentative to say it, but it has opened up the possibility for cure for our patients with metastatic disease or make lung cancer more of a chronic disease and make that a reality for, for patients. And this was really the first time ever, except for potentially some of the EGFR uh, targeted therapies or even the ALK targeted therapies, but none of those, I would say, cure our patients. And with immunotherapy, there are some patients where their cancers just never come back. Um, and so, you know, and we do have patients that are alive now five, 10 years with a history of metastatic disease uh, where their lung cancers don't come back. You know, so, and it's also nice to see that lung cancer, while the number of patients aren't uh, at the same as melanoma or the response isn't quite the same as melanoma patients, but we're seeing some patients track very similarly and doing well for a very long time. And also, while some toxicities are long-lasting as well, for the most part, we can uh, mitigate those side effects and patients can do well and have a good quality of life for a very long time as well, even if they're not cured. This has all, all been such a, a great uh, story and I love hearing this right from you. I, I do have one last question, Julie, a little tangential. You know, over the past few years, in addition to all of the remarkable scientific progress that you helped lead, you know, in, including this study, you've also been such a valuable mentor to so many leaders and colleagues in the field. Can you talk about your approach to mentorship and, and what those relationships are like? Well, you hit the nail on the head. That's why I uh, stay in academics in addition to the research that I get to do, uh, being uh, a mentor and helping folks develop their careers in academic thoracic oncology, and even in uh, our clinical investigators in private practice also, it's exciting to be a part of their careers and to be able to help them. And I really think that mentorship is in many forms. You know, I have formal mentor uh, mentorship roles within our institution, 
where we have very formal mentors, but also informally uh, being able to work as a team to help mentor some of our young investigators, in addition to help uh, giving uh, mentees opportunities to network, so leading conferences or mentoring events. And so I think it's really important to help folks really figure out what they really want to do for the rest of their lives, and then also be able to give them opportunities by forging connections. Uh, you know, as the ECOG Akron Thoracic Committee Chair, I get to help uh, young investigators and connect them with either other cooperative group investigators or connect them with other formal mentors or investigators in order to uh, help them develop their clinical research skills. But Julie, we actually have some quotes from some of your mentees themselves. Uh, I'd love to, to read some of these to you. Among the, the highly accomplished thoracic oncology leaders that you've mentored directly, we, we asked for comments from uh, some of our colleagues, Drs. Jerushka Naidu, Patrick Ford, and Elsa Anagnostu. Um, and so I, I don't mean to embarrass you, but why don't we uh, have some of their, their quotes. So Jerushka said, um, actually, why don't we just hear from them directly uh, Jerushka, would you like to, to sort of say a couple words to, to Julie here? Hi, Julie. <laughs> uh, great to surprise you and um, uh, great to, to be in on it with um, colleagues and friends like Elsa and Patrick. Um, just uh, on this podcast and on the topic of mentorship, I think um, Julie really exemplifies the best qualities of mentorship and, and has done uh, across everybody in the department that she's worked with. But it's not just the department. It's a real situation of you want to be somewhere, somewhere where everybody knows your name. Julie knows everybody's name and her door is always open. And um, that feeling permeates. She just sets a, a great example of what it means to be a mentor, and then that extends to a great example of what it means to build an environment in which people can really flourish. And I really think the core quality that, that ties all of that together is generosity. Um, Julie is exceptionally generous with her time, with with opportunities, and, um, and with putting out putting us forward. And that's something that I've definitely enjoyed and, and somehow continue to enjoy, even, even if I move continents, um, Ju Julie is, is always there. And that's something that um, I know many of her mentees share. So thank you, Julie. And I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing what Elsa and Patrick say as well. Patrick, what impact has Julie had on your career? Um, thanks. Uh, she's had a remarkable impact. Um, I've been working with Julie now for almost 15 years, 14 years, I think, this year. And uh, so when I first moved to the U.S., I had uh, done my residency and fellowship in Ireland. So I was relatively unusual pathway. And uh, Julie took me on as a mentee. And it was a, a, um, a remarkable experience. Um, she had just published the study of just... Um, just published the study you have just uh, discussed. And it was really a, a key point in our... Um, in our development of therapies for lung cancer, but Julie was among the most humble and kind people I've, I've ever met. Um, and she was very uh, kind to me to somebody who hadn't done a whole lot of research at that time. Um, however, she was willing to take me on as a mentee and we worked together on um, 
the first neoadjuvant lung cancer trial where Julie was the senior person and I was the junior person. And uh, sub uh, subsequently, um, that has led to further changes in standard of care. And even outside of, uh, of oncology, I've sought her advice. Uh, when my wife and I were buying a house, it was like the first few months of the pandemic. And we were trying to decide, should we go ahead with this or not? And the uh, first person I called was Julie and her husband. And they were, uh, they were the people I spoke to on the phone for advice. So she's, she's a wonderful person and uh, an outstanding mentor. And I've been very fortunate in, in my life to, uh, to have her part of it. That's just a perfect story as we talk about nivolumab in the phase one. And now Patrick, thanks to the mentorship from Julie, nivolumab moved to the new adjuvant setting. So talking about natural history are compound. So Elsa, can you talk about the mentorship from Julie over the years? Sure. Uh, hi, Julie. Um, <clears throat> again, kind of um, uh, continuing on, on the same theme and building upon, you know, what, what Patrick and, and Jeruska said, which I truly share. It, it, I've been truly tremendously fortunate to, to have Julie as my mentor since fellowship uh, here at Hopkins. And um, in addition to, to learning from her, uh, I wanted to highlight that uh, Julie is, is a mentor that you really feel safe, uh, you know, when, when you're around her. And, and you, not only you feel safe, but she also creates a safe environment, you know, um, around you. So it's not just with her, but the whole environment, you know, uh, is, is, is safe. Uh, and, and I think this is this is so important to, to to be able to you know think creatively you know be independent advance uh, professionally, uh, and and what has been truly uh, turnkey turnkey for me um, has been her trust in me and her continuous support of my independence. Uh, I, as Patrick said, I kind of followed a, an unusual path, if you will, you know, being uh, traditionally trained as an oncologist, but then uh, followed my heart in, in the lab and, you know, running molecular tumor board and other precision oncology efforts here at Hopkins. And, and Julie truly uh, trusted, you know, my instincts um, with, with that. And uh, so for that, I cannot, I cannot thank her enough. And just to give you a uh, a sense of the type of person, you know, uh, Jerusalem Patrick talked about her generosity, uh, and this is absolutely true. Is she's she's a person and a mentor that opens every single discussion that we've had on kind of a mentorship uh, level uh, with what do you need, how can I help you? This is the first. This is her opening, uh, her opening phrase, if you will. And I think this is this is pretty telling uh, about her genuine investment in, in, in all of us at a personal level and a professional level. Um, so Julie, thank you so much for everything you've done for us that are here, you know, on the call today, and then for a long, long list of, of, of people that have been impacted and mentored by you. Thank you, for the three of you, for coming in this surprise um, approach. This is the first time we have done this a long cancer concert, and we couldn't do it with a better person than Julie. Um, we would love to keep going, um, you know, but unfortunately we have to close this episode. We want to thank our guests, Dr. Julie Brammer and Herman Dees, um, Jarushka, Elsa, and Patrick. Julie, thank you for all the amazing contributions to the field, for all the research to continue to do, and for mentoring the current and future generation of thoracic oncologists. I, I'm speechless, and I and I think I would say that I'm only as good as the folks that I work with, and so we have a great team. And again, it's so important for our young investigators to be supported by folks uh, who are uh, 
I would say later stage in their careers or even mid careers in order to really advance the field, because really, you know, you're looking uh, or listening to some of the current leaders of the, in the field. And I'm so happy to have played a part in their development, but certainly they are amazing folks uh, in amongst themselves and are doing very amazing independent work. So I'm very proud of all of you. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. Thank you to our guests for being here with us. We appreciate your time and of course all the work you're doing in the field. For more episodes of Lung Cancer Considered, please give us a listen on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website, IASLC.org, under the ISLC News tab. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. Thank you and goodbye.